0: In 2015, Vladimir Putin's number one public enemy, Boris Nemtsov, was shot and killed in front of the Kremlin. He was a relentless critic of Putin, corruption, and war in Ukraine. Then, he was assassinated. I'm Ben Rhodes, writer and co-host of Pod Save the World, and I'm teaming up with Boris's daughter, journalist Zhanna Nemtsova, to tell his story in Cricket Media's new podcast, Another Russia. Together, we uncover what happened to one family and an entire country, and ask whether another Russia is possible. New episodes every Monday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, may I please the It's an old joke, but when a argue, man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word.
2: She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. If things feel strange to you, that may be because it is July and we got some Supreme Court opinions and argued cases. Putting aside the term last year, which occurred during a pandemic that caused the court to delay an entire sitting to the month of May, the last time the court released opinions after the end of June was 1996. So, this year, with the court expected to issue opinions in only 50 some cases, one of the lowest numbers in recent terms, we expected the court to finish in June, which meant Melissa planned some travel for today and Kate is closing on a house. Whoops, lesson learned don't structure your lives in reliance on the Supreme Court's past practice. We maybe should have figured this out by now based on the court's very clear view that stare decisis is for suckers because they waited until July to release the final opinions and such important opinions on the law of democracy. So to make up, For the wrench they threw into our podcasting, we demanded that fellow Voting Rights Act enthusiast Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce under Trump, who famously and ridiculously insisted he was adding a citizenship question to the census in order to better enforce the Voting Rights Act, wink, wink, come on to sub for Kate and Melissa and discuss with me how the court gutted his favorite civil rights statute. Alas, he's too sad about the decision to do that. So we got something even better. I'm Leah Littman, in case you didn't realize this. I'm one of the regular hosts, and I am joined today by not one, but two of the country's foremost experts on the law of democracy to help us break down the opinions from today. The first is Wilfred Codrington, who will be here for the first segment, breaking down the opinions with me. And then later on, we'll hear some quick thoughts from Rick Hassan. So welcome to the show, Wilfred.
1: Thank you, Leah. It's great to be here on July one.
2: Yeah. Um, So I am delighted to be here with Wilfred. He is an assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and a fellow at the Brennan Center. Professor Codrington is a scholar of constitutional law, election law, and voting rights. Um, He was previously the Bernard and Ann Spitzer Fellow and Counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU, where he focused on voting and election security. He is also the co-author of the forthcoming book, The People's Constitution, 200 Years, 27 Amendments, and the Promise of a More Perfect. Union, which examines the history of constitutional amendments and the tension between the overall progressive arc of constitutional change and the conservative grip on the broader conversation about the Constitution. So, Wilfred, I guess first I want to ask you, like, why do you think the justices waited until July or couldn't release these opinions until July? Like, before today, my theory was... They're pissed that they can't do their usual summer trips to Europe because of the pandemic. And they wanted to ruin everyone else's summers, too.
1: Yeah, uh, (laughs) perhaps that's it. Um, You know, we're all looking forward to our July 4th break. Um, So, you know, maybe they want to give us a little something to chew on over the long weekend weekend. Um, maybe it has something to do with a forthcoming uh, retirement announcement. I don't know how you would tie one to the other, but, um, there's a, there's a whole uh, array of reasons that it could be, but, uh, they, they did drop something on us today.
2: Yeah. My theory in light of what they did drop on us today is that Sam Alito, was complaining that Justice Kagan was being too mean to him in her dissent in Burnovich and accused her of quote trying to cancel him and that caused some delay but let's not get too ahead of ourselves <laughs> um, <laughs> So let's just dive into Burnovich, which, of course, is the case that I was alluding to. This is the major Voting Rights Act case we've been watching and have talked about before. Um, but to appreciate the significance of the case, you know, got to have some background. So bear with me, listeners. The case involves Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits two kinds of voting restrictions. The first are those that intentionally discriminate on the basis of race, and the second are those that result in selective disadvantages on the basis of race, that is those that have a disparately negative effect on voters of color. Um, This case is the first vote denial case under Section 2 that has reached the court. The court has previously addressed redistricting cases, but this case involved a challenge to laws that actually prevented people from voting or prevented counting their votes. The first Voting restriction was an Arizona prohibition on counting provisional ballots that were accidentally cast in the wrong precinct on election day. And the second was an Arizona restriction that prohibits the collection of ballots by most people who aren't the voter. What was on the table when the court heard this case for possible theories about what section two might mean? Um, if you remember from argument, there were a few ones bubbling around. The first was the idea that. Only those laws that result in a, quote, substantial disparity, rather than just any disparity, violate Section 2. The second was a so-called equal opportunity theory, the idea that as long as some of a state's voting policies or procedures remain equally open to everyone, it doesn't matter if a state shuts down some voting practices or procedures that are more used by racial minorities. The third was almost like a safe harbor type theory, the idea that longstanding voting restrictions or common voting restrictions can't violate Section 2. So Justice Alito had the opinion for the court. This was expected in light of the other opinion assignments at the time. And I think, honestly, after oral argument, we were all lulled into a sense that whatever the court was going to do in upholding the Arizona voting restrictions, it wasn't going to do something super crazy and embrace the most ridiculous version of these theories, in particular the equal opportunity theory, which would just completely gut, you know, section two, you know, because if the prospect that some of the states voting policies or procedures remained open to everyone was enough to defeat a section 2 claim then it would be really hard for any section 2 claim to prevail. Um I think this opinion is worse than I was expecting because it seems to embrace all of the theories that were being advanced to limit section 2 and gives states and conservative judges a variety of arsenals to rule against Section 2 claims. Um, is that kind of how you read Justice Alito's like multi-factor analysis?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's actually quite interesting as you were going through the three, I was thinking the same thing. If somehow three entities can sort of merge into one or have some sort of offspring, that's what you get. He kind of just sprinkled a bit of that into his, his analysis, right? And, and the analysis we're talking about is this totality of circumstances inquiry. And um, for the totality of circumstances inquiry, typically what courts would look to was uh, the 1982 Senate report, these factors that kind of in in sort of actuality, did uh, pertain more to vote dilution claims. Most of them did. But, you know, without um, Section 5, which was gutted, um, courts started looking towards this and seeing how we could apply those to vote denial cases like this one. So uh, Justice Alito uh, came up with sort of five other things to um, fit into this totality of circumstances inquiry. Um, One was the size of the burden imposed. Uh, Another was the degree to which the voting rule departs from the practices that were in place in 1982. I find that one to be particularly problematic.
2: Um,
1: He says uh, a third one is the size of the disparities uh, rule that's impacted on minority voting. Another is to consider the opportunities provided by the state to vote. And then uh, the last one is the strength of the state's interests served. I'm just going to start by saying, I find this new test uh, problematic for a couple reasons. Um, first, because he starts with this sort of um, Textual reading of the statute, right? So he, he goes into the dictionary definition of what is open and what is equal and what have you, and then um, he, he creates this test, which is not coming from the dictionary. Second, as I said, we have um, some factors to be considering already in the totality of circumstances. And third, he kind of, it almost seems as if he's created. These um, factors, having already decided the case, right? It, it, because if you read them, there's not one that favors um, the, the plaintiffs in the case no. in the first instance. So it's to me, to me that's just like this three prong smack in the face or three times yeah. smack in the face.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And Justice Kagan and her dissent characterize this multi-factor test in the same way that you did and that I read it as, which is think of the majority's list as a set of extra textual restrictions on Section 2, methods of counteracting the law Congress actually drafted. And, you know, that's essentially what it does. It, again, identifies a bunch of ways that plaintiffs could lose Section 2 claims. She also kind of calls it a non-test test, again, because it is just this, like, list of factors that courts can invoke to rule against these claims. So maybe we can go through each of the factors. You mentioned that the presumption of validity for voting restrictions that were in existence in 1982 was particularly problematic in your view, but maybe we can just go through each of the factors and kind of talk about how they fit into Section 2 claims and what they might mean for Section 2 claims going forward. So the first one was, as you noted, you know, the extent of the burden, you know, whether the disparity is substantial or whether it is minor. This is something we had talked about previously. Part of what is annoying about this theory is of course, as Justice Kagan notes in dissent, elections are fought and won at the margins, right? Sometimes there can be small differences that will make all the difference. You know, Arizona statewide elections are sometimes won by 10,000 votes. So the fact that one of these voting restrictions would have tossed out over 3,000 votes is not something just to poo-poo at. It's just a pretty concerning thing to me to just have these disparities written off, given that the cost to the state of actually counting these votes, given that they are, again, 3,000, would also not be substantial, like, under this logic.
1: I, I think you're starting to get the sense that I'm bothered by this <laughs> opinion. Um, but You're yeah, in so- the right place. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So one, we're talking about Arizona here, right? <laughs> and we're this is the this sort of size of the burden imposed and sort of pushing away the idea of of things that occur on the margins don't matter. Arizona was won on the margins in the last election. It is just ironic that um, he would sort of dispense with the idea that mar- the margins don't ma- and the margins matter. Um, so that, to me, is a little problematic. It's also problematic because it almost reads as if he didn't read the dissents. And I mean, I wasn't a Supreme Court clerk. But from what I understand, these drafts circulate among people. So it's like there was nothing done to even sort of rebut or pre-but that, that sort of idea that it doesn't matter. To me, it also bothers me a bit because it's, it disparages the idea of democracy in the first instance, right? And even more, if we're talking about um, things, votes on the margins don't matter. Getting rid of the like these sort of marginal votes don't matter, and we're talking about marginalized communities. Like right. I, I, I just there's something that just is unsettling about that. We're already talking about minority populations, so by definition, um, communities that cannot win elections on their own. So they need every vote to matter. And if you just say these votes that are happening on the margins by these marginalized communities don't matter, then you're just kind of undermining the idea of the Voting Rights Act in the first place.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think in particular, that factor in conjunction with the, I think it was the third factor um, that was part of the test, which was the size of any disparities on, you know, particular racial groups. And in one remarkable passage on that factor, Justice Alito basically says, well, to the extent that minority and non minority groups differ with respect to employment, wealth and education like even neutral regulations will have an effect you know that looks like it is on the basis of race and this passage to me was particularly insane because it is on the cusp of a revelation that in fact racial disparities are systemic that we have a problem with systemic racism and because there are so many glaring disparities associated with race and yet justice alito's conclusion from that is, and so the state could just as easily like discriminate based on employment and can, you know, capitalize on these racial disparities. And and that's just fine. And, you know, to say that is kind of the tenor of the Voting Rights Act is quite a step for me, um, but it is just an odd perspective on the world also.
1: Are you calling him Trollidle here? (laughs) We have systemic discrimination and systemic racism that occurs that affects voting, and there's no sort of connection between the way those things work, right? Um, Yeah, I I, I read that, and I said, okay, um, again— Let's let's think about this. The connection between wealth and education and employment obviously impact how we're going to vote. Let's. I'll take. I would take that for granted. Um, <laughs> but your inability to vote is going to impact your ability to gain education and wealth and employment. And it's it, it's just like those things are completely disconnected for him. But the other part of that is that that plays into the totality of the circumstances, right? right? So we're creating this whole new totality of the circumstances test, but you're ignoring these things that are clearly, not only clearly because they just make sense, but clearly because these were things that were mentioned in the congressional reports that you are supposed to take into account, these historical and socioeconomic factors. And it's just like, that's not even acknowledged at all.
2: I think that that completely relates to a point you made earlier, which is discounting the quote marginal votes of marginalized communities. And here, Justice Alito is basically like, well, okay, yeah, the group that is burdened is also, you know, burdened when it comes to access to employment, wealth and healthcare, but so be it, right? Might as well stick it to him too on voting. And, you know, that's just kind of the way things are. And again, not really kind of An attitude of a justice who appreciates the history of the Voting Rights Act or, as you were saying, the kind of congressional history which appreciated that access to voting and voting rights was a mechanism to correct for other types of systemic disparities. Um, but, you know, again, Sam is going to Sam.
1: <laughs> I, I just want to add, how, like you said, he doesn't appreciate the history. He was mad at the history. He was mad at <laughs> Justice Kagan for going into the history as if this shouldn't inform the debate.
2: Yes, no, you you're right. Like he he specifically takes issue with the fact that Justice Kagan recounted the history of voter suppression and racial discrimination in this country, as well as the history of how the court has weakened the Voting Rights Act. And Justice Alito called that, you know, like irrelevant and yada yada yada. And he was so angry about that. Um he's just He is angry even when he is winning. Like he has an emotional register that ranges from angry to 76 page dissents that crash the U.S. reports. And that is the kind of spectrum that we're working with. And I guess we just got angry here.
1: Quick math says, according to Justice Alito, about 80 percent of Justice Kagan's dissent is irrelevant. Right. Right. Just by the page count.
2: Right, yes. So then we should get to the other factors that Justice Alito invokes, which I think are arguably even more problematic than the ones we've already taken issue with. The first, as you noted, is this presumption that voting restrictions that existed in 1982 are somehow completely fine. Um, What? Like, the whole point of Section 2, as well as this 1982 amendment— was intended to disrupt the status quo and outlaw entrenched forms of voter suppression, not to lock them in for perpetuity. And also this theory will make it impossible to challenge a lot of the recent rollbacks of expanded access to voting. So think about, for example, rollbacks to absentee voting or early voting. Well, if those things didn't exist in 1981 or 1982, I guess it's okay for states just to knock them out like it's a it's a circular theory that has no basis in the statute and is very opportunistic as you were suggesting like it is just going to knock out section two claims right and left
1: yeah a hundred percent on that i mean the 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 problem that we're going to use 1982 as the baseline as if history doesn't move it's well one the problem is that there were there was rampant discrimination of voting then right so um why sort of just like start there but second we evolve in the ways that we make our democracy accessible? And if one thing doesn't point that out, it's the pandemic this year, right? Drop boxes weren't available in 1982, but by his logic, if everybody sort of made that available and then they sort of just take them away and they impact people of color more than everybody else because, for example, you want to put it one in Harris County, Texas, but like one in every other county, irrespective of the size, um, that is okay with him. And to me, that's appalling. Uh, and and (laughs) It's insulting. Um, But then he also does this thing where he says like, he kind of moves away from the fact that 1982 is the baseline he says it it should be the baseline but then he says it shouldn't be or all of what i'm saying is not to say that it is the baseline and then he goes back and says basically yes it is the baseline and i'm not sure why he's doing that like if he's not comfortable saying what he's saying in um like wholeheartedly or or something um but there was just sort of like this movement of his own baseline of 1982 being the baseline, which I, 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 I'm i just really troubled by. Again, we make voting easier as time moves on. It's going to be because of technology. It's going to be because of, because of outside circumstances. And if we want to say that, like, the baseline doesn't move with that at all or the baseline just stays where it was 40 years ago uh, we're going to be in trouble we're we're, go- we're going to lag um throughout the country we're going to have disparate systems and we'll lag behind the rest of the world it, it's 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 just it's it's troublesome
2: also i thought shelby county said history didn't end in 1972 or 1982 but you know i guess it did when it comes to section 2 but you know, doesn't for section five. I mean, whatever. Um, (laughs) I I don't don't mean like whatever in like dismissing like this case. I think this case is, you know, an affront to section two. It is an affront to, you know, the protections of the Voting Rights Act is an affront to, you know, the multiracial democracy, you know, that we are attempting to build. But, you know, the analysis in this opinion is frankly embarrassing.
1: It's embarrassing. I just – want to go back quickly to the fact that he got so mad at Justice Kagan for just sort of laying out the history. And it is so clear that we are dealing with Section 2, which is like the most potent thing we have left of the Voting Rights Act because of what the Supreme Court did in 2013. And that seems to bother him. And that's why I think why he starts out with a history that is so bereft of, like, what actually went on and get so mad at at that time. And then he stays in history. He stays in 1982, which, uh, uh, yeah, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing.
2: Yeah, that was in his defense the year before I was born, and I think he's been, like, a little bit angry with all the nicknames I've given him. So I understand, you know, the impulse to turn the clock back to 1982, but, Sam, that's not based in the statute. (laughs) Um, so another, again, factor that he kind of tosses out as a way to defeat Section 2 claims is, I think, basically the equal opportunity theory that the Arizona Republican Party was arguing for, because Justice Alito says, um, where a state provides multiple ways to vote, any burden imposed on voters who choose one of the available options cannot be evaluated without also taking into account the other available means. And again, we mentioned how this might apply to restrictions on early voting or absentee voting when in-person voting remains available or imagine a state does away with Sunday voting but you know retains Monday through Saturday voting all of a sudden you know you're forced to have to analyze you know the remaining voting restrictions and prove that the system as a whole still has a disparate effect and that i think will be extremely detrimental to section 2 claims going forward, because especially given how like Justice Alito applied that theory here, he basically said like, sure, right, the Arizona system casts out, you know, many more out of precinct ballots than any other state. But right, the state offers other easy ways to vote. And so that can't be a problem. And that logic and that analysis is just going to be very difficult in section 2 litigation going forward
1: yeah the the more ways you have uh, you make it available for people to vote the the sort of more you can discriminate in any of those particular ways of voting yeah, right. and that, that to me that the logic i mean that's the logic and, and, and he's okay with that because that's exactly what we're dealing with here, right? We're, we're saying that early voting is available. You can mail in your ballot. You can drop it off. You can have a postal worker bring it in. You can have your mom bring it in, what have you, right? But if one of those ways become discriminatory, let's say that all black people's mothers are dead or something, right? So you have one less one. And we know that. So that's fine. Or... Black people and they're they're further away from post offices, so that's also okay. But that's exactly what we're dealing with. The specific issues we're dealing with here are the outer precinct voting and the ballot collection. Um, but because we know that minorities are making more use of the ballot collection, really, which became clear in the debates of. The, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to start talking about the intent part of this too, <laughs> yeah. which Justice Kagan did not touch on, but it became very clear in the debates that this was a means that was used more by Native Americans and people of color because they don't have access. Um, but that's okay because you have these other alternatives for voting. And I, that that is really problematic. It's, it's problematic on that level itself. It's also just problematic because... It ignores the language of the law. It talks about political processes and, and participation in the political process, not as if, if it's just one thing. It's any sorts of modes of participating in the election, to whether they're primaries or the general election. So if you cut off one way or you make it substantially more difficult one way, And every other way is sort of even. You are still discriminating against the people who have a more difficult time to use the other way.
2: Yeah. Then we get to the last factor, which is even if you find that a law does create a disparity or even a substantial disparity in the whole operation of the system – You can find that the state's interest behind this law outweighs that disparity. And here, Justice Alito writes into the opinion that fraud is a real risk that accompanies mail-in voting, even if Arizona had the good fortune to avoid it. What does this mean? Even if a state has no evidence that fraud exists, even if it has no evidence that its law solves an actual problem— That hypothetical interest is enough to outweigh actual evidence of discriminatory effects. And here, you know, the Sam-splaining seems to be that, like, the real untold story of the Voting Rights Act is that it was enacted to prevent Black people from voting based on spurious claims of voter fraud. Like... this is not the Voting Rights Act or like any Voting Rights Act with which anyone would be familiar. Um, but, you know, that is baked into the opinion and that becomes part of his analysis.
1: Yeah. Um, the obsession with the phantom voter fraud is real. And it, it to me, it just becomes more pronounced in every election case that comes from the court. Right. And, and the problem is, there are no facts to support them. So what they'll do is a, a look for the latest instance where they can find something, right? Now, this one cites North Carolina's election fraud in 2018 as if that's what the Voting Rights Act was concerned about. And then on top of that, it, it's it's not just the phantom of voter fraud. It's also like there's this passing line about oh yeah, well, intimidation could also be a state interest. Well, what are we talking about? There's no, there's nothing about intimidation here. Like who, who's, who being intimidated are we actually talking about? Like really the crux of that argument is on the voter fraud. And it just sort of goes to this other thing to like throw out these potential other state interests that might, um, that might bolster a state's, decision to enact laws that discriminate against other people. The voter fraud fallacy is just real in their minds. It is not a thing, and yet it finds its way in every voting decision.
2: Um, so you've already alluded to this, so maybe we can skip ahead to the portion of the opinion on intentional discrimination, because the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit had also invalidated the prohibition on ballot collection on the ground that the state had enacted it in order to intentionally discriminate on the basis of race. Um, as you mentioned, there was you know basically uncontradicted record evidence that in outside of Arizona's two largest counties, um, a large proportion of the native population lived in areas that were far away from, you know, post offices. um, And so therefore, this restriction would have a disparate impact on their ability to vote. Um, And a former Republican state senator had basically lobbied for this bill by touting, you know, non-existent threats of voter fraud and then putting together a Ominous looking surveillance footage of an apparently Hispanic man who the video called a thug, you know, purportedly stuffing a ballot box. And based on that evidence, as well as I think the general history of discrimination on the basis of race and voting in Arizona, uh, the Ninth Circuit concluded that this was intentional discrimination on the basis of race. You know, previously, the Supreme Court actually in an opinion by Justice Alito, Abbott versus Perez from 2018, had made it really hard to prove that voting restrictions were intentionally discriminating on the basis of race. But this opinion, I think, goes even further and makes it even worse because it suggests that partisan motives, that is a desire to hurt political opponents and entrench your own political power, are completely separate from and independent of racial motives. So the mere fact that someone was trying to enhance their own political power doesn't show that they were discriminating on the basis of race. And they also say that even with that evidence that a state senator was engaged in basically very obvious racial motivations for the law, the fact that other legislatures, quote, engaged in serious debates, is enough to sanitize the law. And those two parts of the court's reasoning, I think, you know, will also make it difficult to prove intentional discriminations outside of disparate impact claims under the Voting Rights Act as well.
1: This intent part really, really bothers me. Um, The fact that you have this obvious video, that it's, let's call it what it is, it's a racist video, right? And it's it's trying to imply that you're going to have these Latino men come steal your ballots and sort of um, change the results of the election one way or the other. That you can have that as the basis to start some debate and then somehow the debate becomes sincere is problematic to me, right? And and so just stop there. Um, We have something that is obviously racist. It foments debate and that debate now becomes a wash of race. I don't understand how that's possible. Um, but then there's just, it, then there's this sleight of hand he has where it just moves from race to partisanship. In the next paragraphs, it goes back to race a little bit, but like really, it just says we can move quickly from race to partisanship, completely ignoring the fact. And I know that conservatives love to do this, but ignoring the fact that minorities vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, and and that is just that is just a a truism, right? And and to me, that's one of those things that we should also be considering in totalities of circumstances, right? Like this is part of our history. There's a reason why minorities vote for uh, Democrats more often than not. And, And therefore, when we talk about race in elections, we're gonna be talking about party in elections. And this does by just sort of blending the two and as if, like one doesn't exist anymore, that just does make it harder to prove intentional discrimination. I'm not sure what that means for the future. I don't think there was enough ink spilled on it here to tell us, but it, it just makes me very nervous for the next Section 2 case to come out of the Supreme Court.
2: Yeah. um, So I kind of want to read some of my favorite excerpts from Justice Kagan's dissent, which was really powerful and had some passages that I think are worth highlighting. So in particular, the opening notes that if a single statute represents the best of America, it is the Voting Rights Act. It marries two great ideals, democracy and racial equality. And if a single statute reminds us of the worst of America, it is the Voting Rights Act because it was and remains so necessary.
1: It is the best of times. It is the worst of times.
2: Right. Exactly. And She also, I think, calls out the court's hostility to the Voting Rights Act. She says, yet in the last decade, this court has treated no statute worse. You know, to take the measure of today's harm, a look to the act's past must come First, you know, she also explicitly invokes several times Justice Ginsburg's dissent in Shelby County. She notes studies that have suggested that the court's invalidation of Section 5 actually led to some of the voter suppression laws that have been enacted since then. She also has some very memorable (laughs) footnotes and digs at. Justice Alito, so she says that majority brands this historical account part of an extended effort and misdirection. I am tempted merely to reply enough said about the majority's outlook on the statute before us. She calls the majority's opinion, quote, a law-free zone. Uh, You know, she says in a single sentence, the majority, quote, huffs that nobody disputes various of these points of law that she just went over in her dissent. Excellent, she says. I only wish the majority would take them to heart. And she ends with, this court has no right to remake Section 2. And, you know, she basically accuses, rightly so, of the court declining to read Section 2 for what it says and what it was intended to do because the court believes that to be too radical. That is, it is too radical for a federal statute to actually invalidate quite common measures of voter discrimination. And, you know, she says that's what's happening here.
1: Right. It, it's really poetic in a way. And it's also sort of like there are parts that are kind of tongue in cheek, right? Kind of in some ways, it reminds me of her Salem law of dissent, where yeah. he obviously is the one who commands the knowledge here and just like lays it out, um, knowing that it's a dissent. Um, she throws at them some of the things that they like to sort of Throw at us the dictionary definition of abridgment. If you, <laughs> you forget that it's not only about vote denial, it's about anything that abridges the right to vote. And she also, I think, and and maybe this is not going to come up to everyone. She. Pays homage to Justice Ginsburg, yes. right? Just throughout, it is laced with uh, beautiful lines that she has served up, whether it's in Shelby or in other cases. And so, I think it's important in many regards. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it it is it is laced with zingers. But if you read through it, the, it, it reads beautifully because it is just so methodical um, and and really. Irrespective of what Justice Alito says, I think that that history right up front is just so important.
2: Oh yeah. It's absolutely important. I mean, you can't, for example, decide, you know, what section two's reference to equal opportunity, for example, means without Consulting what the Voting Rights Act was enacted to do, and the congressional reports that mentioned, you know, the disparities in other areas we were talking about, or you know, the hope that remedying disparities in voting would remedy other kinds of disparities, and so thinking about that history is part of what makes, you know, her competing textual moves all the more persuasive.
1: I agree. Um, I just wish that her analysis was the majority.
2: As do I. Um, but I would, you know, maybe as we are wrapping up our discussion of Bernovich like to extend another invitation to Elena Kagan to join the podcast, maybe to make some Wilbur Ross jokes with me. I mean, in that opening passage that that I read where she says because it, you know, that is the Voting Rights Act, was and remains so necessary, like, is that a necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act reference? A part of me wondered. Maybe I just want to believe these things and I'm searching for meaning in a very dark world.
1: Oh, uh, With the, the law-free zone uh, quote where she says, every once in a while when it's lawmaking right. grab- <laughs> off the page, it thinks to sprinkle it in a few random statutory words. That's searing.
2: Yeah, I know. <laughs> it cuts deep. This is why I think, you know, Sam went to the chief's office and was like, you need to make her stop being so mean to me. Like, this is so mean. And, you know, I, I don't know, two days ago, it is possible that once again, the chief justice just set this day as the last day on the Supreme Court's a calendar because he's like, Elena, you cannot keep adding more to this opinion. <laughs> you have murdered us a million times over and we're still not going to change our minds. They don't have to. No. Yeah. No, this is like the classical embodiment of, you know, power over reason, power over law, right? Like there are no responses to basically anything justice Kagan says. um, And it just doesn't matter. Though hopefully her dissent is a call to action for, those who might be thinking about whether it is worth enacting new voting rights protections, and you know maybe how to do so.
1: She just talks about how this is an era where democracy is really at stake, and I mean she she calls out the the sort of spate of bills that are um, going through state legislators, and she you know obviously calls out the supreme court for its role in it too so she she's hoping that someone's listening i am hoping that someone is listening
2: me too me too Um, So maybe we can just briefly recap Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta, which was the other law of democracy case released today. This is the case that involves a California regulation that requires certain nonprofits to provide a list of their donors to the government. The IRS also has this requirement. The records are not publicly disclosed, although California in the past has had – bureaucratic hiccups and oversights that resulted in the disclosure of some donor information. So Americans for Prosperity argue that they have a First Amendment right to keep their donors anonymous because publicity creates a risk of harassment to the donors. California, for its part, argued the regulation was necessary to ferret out fraud and to ensure that charities were, in fact, sticking to their missions um, and also to verify the accuracy of organizations' financial reports. So We had been watching this case in part because, you know, the court had previously laid out view that these disclosure and reporting requirements were basically – a way to counteract the court's invalidation of other campaign finance restrictions. That is, the court had previously adopted a super narrow definition about what constitutes corruption and said the way to police corruption is not by restricting campaign donations or campaign contributions, but instead to make that information public, to give information to the voters so they they can police the existence of corruption. And in Citizens United, you know, the court upheld 8 to 1 disclosure requirements, This case, I think, marks an important turning point in the court's jurisprudence, where in a 6-3 opinion by the chief, the court invalidates this California regulation, basically doing a few things that could signal, you know, other disclosure or reporting requirements being invalid as well. Um, First, the court says the legal test that courts apply to these restrictions is exacting scrutiny. And that this requires these requirements to be narrowly tailored to achieve the government's asserted interest. Um, This is important because the court then applied that standard to require California to demonstrate that it had actually used the reported information In actual prosecutions and enforcement proceedings. And because it hadn't done so, the court said, well, you haven't shown this reporting requirement is actually necessary to achieve your interests. The court also upheld the First Amendment challenge, even though there was pretty generic evidence about the risk of harassment that is there wasn't information that like any particular donor might be subject to harassment it was more just that the organizations themselves and causes they were associated with were subject to public criticism and so the combination of those two things you know in the majority opinion could facilitate future challenges to other disclosure requirements or reporting requirements as well. Um, Justice Sotomayor wrote the dissent for the three liberals and said, you know, the court is basically putting a bullseye or target on other Reporting and disclosure requirements and making them easier to challenge.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's strange to me. This opinion is strange to me for a couple of reasons. One is that we could have just really spoken about California and the like as applied, right? If you have a problem with the fact that California had uh, bureaucratic problems in keeping the information uh, confidential, then like we could have tailored the case specifically to them. But this is broader than that, right? Um, so that's problematic. Um, it's problematic to me when you compare this case to the case that we were just talking about, that this is not a, a narrowly tailored uh, relationship between the attorney general's stated interest and what happens. Well, how would that fit <laughs> in the other case? What if we really want to use this exacting standard in the last case and said Arizona had to use a narrowly tailored approach um, to actually combat voter fraud, which is the sort of purported end that they were trying to achieve um, in in enacting the two policies. And then third, they just seem to be talking past each other what this whole exacting scrutiny is, which um, I have to admit for my, for my con law class, my students this semester, I gave them a question about the standards of scrutiny, good, bad, what would you <laughs> add, whatever, and I can't tell you how many of them just said there is no three-tier standard of scrutiny and the fact that the court just adds these other ones and it just becomes so difficult to know exactly what you're talking about, even if you are sitting in the same room, in the same building with each other, trading drafts with each other. We're not even talking about the same thing anymore. Um, And so I see that as problematic. It is important to know that this was Not specifically about campaign finance, but it's also important to know that this could easily um, translate into uh, rationale that would um, uh, eviscerate disclosure laws in the campaign finance context.
2: Right. Like if exacting scrutiny applies to all disclosure or reporting requirements, then a state or the federal government would also have to show that it actually uses the information that is reported or disclosed to further some interest. And, you know, perhaps the court might apply a looser version of that standard in campaign finance cases, um, similar to what it has done previously in cases like Buckley. But, you know, it's also possible they will instead use the Americans for Prosperity version of that standard. Um, And I'm so glad you actually. Actually, made the comparison to Bernovich as far as using this, you know, narrowly tailored requirement to achieve the government's purposes. Because, in fact, in Bernovich, the court explicitly rejects the idea that the state has to use the least restrictive means to achieve its purposes and instead can enact voter restrictions that result in racial disparities to achieve its purpose even if there might be alternative ways to achieve its purpose that don't result in racial disparities and so it's interesting to put those two things in juxtaposition with one another and see what rights are favored and what rights aren't
1: right and and, and while we're talking about race uh, can I can I just say that I really think this whole chilling effect um, rationale. It's just so exaggerated. Um, and I think it is so unfortunate to make the comparison of these coke Industries to the NAACP of the civil rights era. The, the sort of repercussions at worst that the donors to um, Americans for Prosperity are likely to face are far from that which Medgar Evers faced for being a member of the NAACP in the 1950s and 60s, Americans for Prosperity—they may face the shunning that uh, Alan Dershowitz faced in Martha's Vineyard, okay. but they're not going to be gunned down in their 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 driveways when they're sort of going out to take out the garbage or whatever. That that it is just—it it, it, it really—it's an insult to history it's an insult to american history and it is insult to the real rationale behind the first amendment like i'm just i'm i'm annoyed but i'm so <laughs> perturbed by this
2: yeah um, it was especially annoying to see these two cases released in tandem to one another, in part because of the contrast, you know, you've already drawn, in part because, you know, the court is making it easier to essentially contribute an unlimited amount of money to political causes you want than to actually participate in the political process by voting. And, you know, that does not seem to be the you know right way to think about, you know, what rights kind of like lie at the base of a constitutional democracy democracy um but it is also because you know in this afb case and we talked about this story in the argument the court is heavily invoking you know the naacp cases from the 1960s to say that the threats faced by you know conservative political donors are similar in kind to those faced by naacp members in the 1950s and 1960s and this is just not true. Like mean Twitter comments or people deciding not to buy particular products is just not the same thing.
1: There's the stalking horse in Bronovich about, you know, this being a federal, like them trying to stop a federal takeover of elections like yeah. away from the states. If there is anything that is in the province of states, it is charitable trust law. <laughs> right. That is a creation of state law. And, and and the sort of enforcement of their laws by attorneys general of the state, it's, that is in their province. So n- now they can't even set out their own regulations to ensure that these organizations are actually carrying out the purposes for which they've been established. I, I – I, this – that was maybe, again, you asked why they released him on July 1, why they released him together. Maybe it was just to make you and me really, really mad by all the comparison.
2: It's to trigger the libs. Um, that That is a definite possibility. <laughs> it, it's a Trollito move um, or a Peak Lito move. Not quite sure what persona, um, but, but one of the two. Um, so any other kind of thoughts on either opinion before we wrap up
1: you know they were released today i'm still trying to put my thoughts together those were some initial ones i may want to talk again about my revised thoughts in time but right now i think i'm just going to uh i'm gonna go take a shower
2: Well, that sounds great. You are always welcome to revise your takes, and we would love to have you back on sometime. Um, thank you so much to Wilford Codrington for joining us to give a same-day breakdown of the court's two major and end-of-term law of democracy cases. Of course. This was fun. And now we are going to get some quick additional reactions from Rick Hassen. A chancellor's professor of law and political science at the University of California, Irvine, Rick runs the election law blog and is really one of the nation's foremost authorities on election law and voting rights. You may see or hear or read him today on MSNBC, CNN, the New York Times, or any other number of places where his commentary is in such high demand. He is the author, most recently, of Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy, and also the author of the forthcoming cheap speech savings American elections in the disinformation era. Welcome to the pod, Rick.
0: Great to be with you. Longtime fan, first time caller.
2: <laughs> Longtime recipient of several of our voting rights related t-shirts as well. So let's start with Brnovich. Um, I guess the first question I want to ask is a compound question, which is, How sad do you think Wilbur Ross is that his favorite civil rights statute has been so greatly weakened by the Supreme Court?
0: (laughs) Once I saw that Justice Alito had the majority opinion in this case, I knew that uh, it was going to be a day that um, conservatives were going to love and liberals were going to hate. And it really is an evisceration of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in the context of Vote denial cases, that is, not redistricting cases, but cases where the claim is that that minority voters have a harder time registering to vote or actually voting.
2: So, I guess, could you expand more on that and specifically compare it to the equal opportunity theory that some of the litigants were raising as a way to limit Section 2? The equal opportunity theory was, as we noted on our preview in previous episodes, the idea that so long as a state's voting policies remained Theoretically open in some capacities to a voter, then restricting alternative ways of voting couldn't violate Section 2. So, to make that more concrete, if theoretically voters could vote in person, then a state doing away with early or absentee voting wouldn't violate Section 2, even if that had a disparate impact on voters of color. Now, that's not explicitly or formally like a uniform theory of Section 2 that the court adopts, but I think. Justice Alito kind of does incorporate parts of that into the standard he announces for Section 2, and his application of the legal test that he announces bears some resemblances to that. So could you explain more about why Justice Alito's opinion is an evisceration of Section 2?
0: So I think the easiest way to understand this is to contrast what Justice Alito did with what Justice Kagan wanted to do in the dissent. Justice Kagan said that kind of the the cornerstone here should be disparate impact. That is, you should look at a law and ask, uh, do minority voters have a harder time voting because of this law? So if you're a Native American, you're living on a reservation in Arizona, you're going to have a harder time voting, according to the evidence, if you can't have third party ballot collection, so-called ballot harvesting, because there's not regular mail collection and people live at the far distances. Um, that's a pretty good place to start. Uh, with figuring out whether or not minority voters have less opportunity than others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice, which is the language of Section 2 uh, in the statute. Justice Alito says, no, 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 it's not about disparate impact. And then he goes through um, just kind of a whole litany of ways in which voters who have some chance to vote are not deprived of an opportunity, even if Um, their preferred way of voting is now harder. And even if overall it's harder to vote in the state than it used to be before. So, for example, um, if it's just a usual burden of voting, whatever that means, then that's not subject to a Section 2 challenge. So we're going to have lots of litigation over what a usual burden of voting is. Or if the state says that the law is necessary to prevent fraud, the state doesn't have to actually prove that frauds a real problem because it shouldn't have to actually go through those paces. But minority voters have to prove that the law imposes a severe burden on them. Uh, this is very much parallel to what the court did in a 2008 case called Crawford versus Marion County Election Board. And in that case, the court made a similar move when restrictive voting rules are challenged on a constitutional basis. Plaintiffs have to come forward with a ton of evidence that they have overall been really restricted in being able to vote. And yet the state can just assert an interest in preventing fraud or administrative convenience as enough to potentially defeat it unless it's a really severe burden. And so as I was going through the majority opinion, it was hard for me to think of any law that's being challenged that would flunk the majority's test. That's what I mean by an evisceration.
2: That's what I was just about to ask you because in the wake of Shelby County, you know, the very conservative US Court of Appeals for the 5th Circuit did uphold a Section 2 challenge to Texas's voter identification law, you know, finding that it unlawfully, you know, resulted in disparate burdens on voters of color. And I guess my question was going to be, do you think that conclusion or the 5th Circuit's analysis holds up in light of bernovich and or you know do you think any of the recent wave of voter suppression laws you know like the one in georgia kind of holds or you know could stand a chance of being invalidated under section two in light of what justice alito said in bernovich i mean my concern is justice alito gave what seemed like a host of factors to be deployed against section two lawsuits such that you know a court in a case challenging let's say restrictions on sunday voting could say well you know Sunday voting hasn't always been a tradition or wasn't that common in 1982. So, you know, that's a way to kind of rule against that lawsuit. Or, you know, the rest of the state's voting procedures remain open to voters, you know, the other six days a week. And that works just fine for a lot of voters. So, who cares if it doesn't work great for, you know, this number of voters of color? And it just seems like that type of analysis will be fatal to all of the Section 2 lawsuits that could be coming up or that we've seen before?
0: So I think that's mostly right. I think that um, the whole reason why voting rights plaintiffs did not want this case before the Supreme Court and why many were upset that the Democratic Party pushed this case, uh, relatively weak cases, in the lower courts, plaintiffs were having some success bringing these lawsuits. The very strict Texas voter ID law was found to be in violation of Section 2 by the Fifth Circuit, as you mentioned, which was the most conservative court in the country. Texas then tweaked its law to make it a little bit less strict, and then the Fifth Circuit upheld it. It showed kind of the statute was working. There was a test. The lower courts had developed a test. That test not, is not even mentioned in the Supreme Court's majority opinion. Um, you know, it was kind of like a three-part test or a two-and-a-half-part test. and um, Now it's being replaced by something, which I think you're right. It just gives conservative judges the chance, ample chances, to say uh, this law is not burdensome enough or this law is not unusual enough to constitute a Section 2 violation. Now, the reason I said I think you're mostly right is because I think that in the hands of a much more liberal judge, you could see language in Justice Alito's opinion be used to claim that there's a Section 2 violation. Um, but as these cases work their way up the food chain and as more courts are um Appeals courts and the Supreme Court are dominated by conservative judges and justices. Those um, victories in the district court, few and far between as they may be, are likely to be reversed. So, uh, thinking about the Georgia law, you know, one of the provisions of the Georgia law cuts back on some days of absentee voting, particularly during the runoff period. Another provision of that law requires that you provide an identification number when you're voting absentee. Do these things flunk section two under the majority test? I find it very hard to believe that the Supreme Court would say that they do. Um, The Department of Justice, as you may recall, recently filed a lawsuit uh, challenging Georgia's new law, and it was drafted in a savvy way to avoid a potential bad outcome in Brnovich by focusing only on discriminatory intent rather than discriminatory effect. But there's another part of the opinion in Bernovich where Justice Alito, following on his terrible opinion a few years ago in Abbott versus Perez, makes it even harder to prove discriminatory intent. And so I have a very hard time believing that a challenge to the new Georgia voting law or to the upcoming Texas law is going to be found to be a violation of Section 2 or found to be unconstitutional.
2: I was just about to say, you know, the liberal, more liberal justices in whose hands this new standard will work just fine. I assume by that you're referring to the very moderate chief justice, Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh, about whom we've heard so much over these last few weeks. Right. No, no, not them. You
0: know, I, I had this fantasy um, <laughs> of a Crawford redux. So in the Crawford case, which I mentioned earlier in 2008, the court divided 3-3-3. Um, They were the three most conservative justices led by Scalia, who basically would not allow any challenges to voter ID laws to go forward. But then there was this middle block, which was Justice Stevens, uh, along with um, Justice Kennedy and Chief Justice Roberts. And they took a somewhat middle position, uh, which left the door somewhat open. And I was hoping, given the kinds of uncertainty that Justice Barrett uh, enunciated in her oral argument questions... She seemed pretty uncomfortable with, uh, with with eviscerating Section 2 during oral argument. I don't know what happened. Uh, Kavanaugh has shown himself to not be friendly to voting rights at all in opinions yeah. related to, to the kind of the emergency COVID election litigation yeah. on the shadow docket that you've talked about on your show uh, numerous times. So um, I can't say I'm surprised. I can say I'm disappointed. But, uh, you know. I had a 29-point tweet thread yesterday. And, like, I had two worst-case scenarios. Uh, One was...
2: Justice Alito has the opinion.
0: (laughs) uh, A majority, not just a plurality opinion. And the the other relates to the other case today, the AFP v. Bonta case, where Chief Justice Roberts pretends he's being minimal and is actually issuing a maximalist, terrible decision.
2: And both of those things kind of came true, right? Since AFP... Not even kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, So I know we're running short on time. So maybe I can just ask you two quick short questions about Bonta. First is what's the most significant part of that decision? Is it that the court said there is a narrow tailoring requirement as part of exacting scrutiny? Is it that they didn't require any evidence of actual threats of harassment for a facial challenge to succeed? Is it that they upheld the facial challenge rather than an as applied challenge? Like what's what's the biggest thing in this? I think it's the first
0: two things. The facial challenge just follows from the other two, which is that you know once you redefine exacting scrutiny and Roberts did this once before in a case called McCutcheon involving campaign contribution, once you redefine exacting scrutiny to be as Justice Alito puts it in his concurrence uh, you know having teeth uh, once you define it as almost strict scrutiny, um, that calls into question a whole bunch of campaign finance laws and I think you know th- there's going to be a lot of challenges on the way that used to fail that now will have a fighting chance number two. Um, you don't have to demonstrate chill. You know, ordinarily, when the court sees plaintiffs it, it doesn't like, like voting rights plaintiffs, it says, show us some real evidence. But here are some, you know, fear of conservatives worried about harassment. And it's, oh, don't bother with the evidence. As Justice Sotomayor said in her, dissent, where is there even standing here? How are these people being injured? But of course, um, standing is in the eyes of the beholder, as, uh, as we well know.
2: Yes. Um, And the second question was just going to be, what do you think the next challenge based on AFP is going to be? Is it going to be to the parallel IRS rule? Is it going to be to the campaign finance disclosure or reporting requirements? Is it going to be to some... I don't know, public health measure, you know, that requires posting of calorie counts or something else? Or like, wh- where do you think this case is going to well, go?
0: Well, you know, I'm kind of focused on election law. And so I'm not really thinking about the implications otherwise for disclosure, which could be significant. But in my area, what I'm worried about is campaign finance disclosure laws. Right. Uh, so the Supreme Court in Citizens United and in McCutcheon said, when we're talking about corruption, it's only about quid pro quo corruption or its appearance and laws have to be justified to promote that. So you can easily say this is not narrowly tailored to prevent corruption because most donors who are giving money are not corrupt. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot more to it. I do think that campaign finance disclosure laws have a fighting chance under the standard, but it's, it's a new lease on life. Generally speaking, courts have been quite uh, dismissive of challenges to disclosure laws. In Citizens United itself, the court approved a very broad disclosure law, but we don't have Justice Kennedy or Justice Scalia on the court anymore. And on disclosure, they were really important conservative voices in favor of disclosure. Justice Scalia wrote a number of opinions where he talked about uh, the importance of standing up for what you uh, say and not, uh, not hiding behind a cloak of anonymity. In, in one of the cases he said, there's, uh, that there's nothing honorable about an anonymous leaflet any more than an anonymous phone call. They're gone. They're replaced by justices who believe that conservatives are under siege and that they are full of threats of harassment, even though, again, as Justice Sotomayor said in her dissent, where's the evidence of harassment? It's not here. So we are just really in a very bad position for American democracy. More dark money, fewer protections for voting rights in the federal courts. Uh, amidst a wave of voter suppression, amidst a flood of money coming in to try to influence our politics, and, you know, um, in a hyper-polarized atmosphere where um, elections are uh, are being fought in in such existential terms, it's just a really bad combination for our democracy
2: right now. Yeah, you read these two cases together, and it's you have a right to buy an election, not a right to vote in one, I guess. And...
0: Well, what, okay. a way, what a way to end the term. Yes, I mean, exactly. maybe by the time we record this, there'll be a briar retirement, but uh, none was on the horizon when we started recording.
2: Right. Um, so thank you so much, Rick, for joining. I know today is super busy for you, and we very much appreciate your time.
0: Great to be with you, and hopefully I'll come back someday when we don't have the Supreme Court issuing two opinions on the, <laughs> within 10 minutes of each other that I've been following for the last year and a half.
2: Fingers crossed. Thanks to our producer, Melody Rowell. Thanks to Eddie Cooper for making our music. Thanks to our summer intern, Liam Becknickson. Thanks to Rick and Wilfred for joining me for a Supreme Court in July. And thanks as always to all of you. We'll be back for a term recap and we'll also have regular summer episodes, so stay tuned.